0: Following the success and critical acclaim of the first three Tone Science compilation albums, DIN label boss Ian Boddy has collated another nine tracks from musicians of varying backgrounds working in the realms of modular synthesis. Tone Science module number four, Form and Function continues the journey down the rabbit hole of possibilities and sound worlds inhabited by artists and musicians working in this ever-fascinating and varied musical field. Tone Science Module 4, Form and Function, comes out September 18th on the DIN record label, on Bandcamp and CD, and features tracks from Panic Girl, Andrew Wong, Light Bath, and me, Tim Held. September 18th. This week's episode is brought to you by Scent Booth an interactive online experience where modular synth makers, musicians, and enthusiasts can connect with their community in a safe and accessible setting. SynthBooth is hosted virtually using an attendee web and mobile application and features panel discussions, educational sessions, a keynote, virtual exhibitor booths, community chat rooms, and music performances. This will be taking place October 16th through the 18th, and you can get your tickets online right now at synthbooth.com. Susie is gonna be there, Banahefar is going to be there, and Annie. I mean, a whole plethora of amazing performances and amazing manufacturers and speakers. Synthbooth.com for your tickets. And if you're wondering, what is this crazy, awesome thing that is going on under Tim's voice? Well, that's just uh, a guitar and the reverb pedal from Empress Effects. I just got it, and I got to tell you, it's one of the most lush-sounding, versatile reverb pedals I've ever played with. Um, So please visit them. Online at empressfx to another episode of Podular Modcast this week I'm very excited to have Justin Melland on the show he is a composer he's worked on three uh Netflix documentary series, which have all been extremely popular. The Ted Bundy tapes, uh, The Innocence Files, and Jef- Jeffrey Epstein Filthy Rich. He has also uh, done work for Showtime's Dark Net. And as we'll find out here in a little bit, um, he he provided the, the soundtrack for um, one of my guilty pleasure shows I used to watch back in the day. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into this. You've also seen him recently on the Patch CV documentary. Um, so yeah, we're going to to dive into uh, a nice conversation here in a moment. But first, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been so active on the Discord channel. Um, Channels, there's many. Uh, There's a there's new music suggestions, there's positive social change, there's gear talk, there's the weekly episode discussion, and I think the most popular and the most fun is the Patch Challenge uh, channel. So keep your Patch Challenges coming, because I want to do uh, another episode soon where I uh, feature your Patch Challenges and your new music. So if you have a new album, or uh, a relatively new album, and you want people to check it out, post it up there. And... Um, and who knows, I might randomly select it to uh, be in one of those upcoming episodes. I also want to say thank you to everybody who's supporting me on Patreon. Um, it means a hell of a lot to me. Um, and you're, you're literally uh, making it possible for this show to, uh, you know, be in existence, really, and be a weekly show. Um, and if any of you are out there thinking, you know what, I want to do something more with my life. Well, then I encourage you to come on over to patreon.com forward slash modcast and join this elite group of people who are making the world a better place month by month by helping me with my digital panhandle out there just um, I'm busking on the internet and I'm running out of things to say passionately, but it would just mean a lot to me if you, uh, if you headed over to, uh, patreon.com forward slash Podium Modcast. I've been posting a lot of cool exclusive content up there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, it, it would mean a lot to me. All right, let's get into a demo and then get into this episode. All right, we're going to take a look at the, uh, the three new modules from After Leader Audio, The Tilt the steps and the blend. Um, I'm actually going to be using two tilts because two function generators are better than one. And uh, I'm going to show you how uh, you can use the attenuator attenuverters uh, on these multiple modules to uh, really breathe some life into your patch, add some variation, um, and really take it to a lot of different places. Um, And I'm going to use Rings to uh, really demonstrate this. So basically all of the afterlater audio modules I just mentioned are just going into one rings. So that's all you're going to be listening to. You can hear it happening behind me right now. Um, I was going to tell you all the, the connections that I made from each module into rings, but it would take like 10 minutes and your eyes would gloss over. And I think uh, the real important thing to keep in mind is that it's coming from the tilt, steps, and blend. And uh, it's just, they're just... So much fun to use and uh, great for live performance. Um, I'm using the minimum, maximum, comparator, and sum outputs of blend. That's important to know because it's blending um, a couple different uh, functions, outputs from tilt. um, And then I'm using the steps output, the random stepped voltage output for the... um, one volt per octave into the rings. So I just told you I wasn't going to tell you all the connections, but I wanted to at least give you that much knowledge about it. And I think just to uh, to spice things up, I'm going to run it all through the Empress uh, Reverb pedal that I just got. I'm going to be using the delay reverb settings. So let's 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 engage that. It's so lush. I love this reverb pedal, and I'm just scratching the surface with it. It's it's so it's got so much uh, range. Um, yeah it just sounds great um, so now I'm gonna just start messing mostly with the blend channel 1 and channel 2 attenuator attenuators, but I'll also be messing with uh, the attenuator attenuators on steps and tilt and even changing the rise and fall time of uh, the function generators because that's where our clock's coming from I'm using some of these end of rise and fall trigger outputs to trigger other modules and uh, it's just basically acting as the heartbeat and the character of of the, uh, the whole patch, these after are audio modules. So I'm going to shut up. Um, I think I've explained it well enough for you to get a good enough idea of what I'm doing. So let's get to it. And there you have it. Please go visit AfterLaterAudio.com to learn more about the tilt, steps, and the blend. And uh, check out the, uh, the reverb from Empress. It's, uh, it's a whole lot of fun, and it sounds so lush. And uh, there's so many different things you can do with it. Um, yeah, let's get into this episode. And we're off to the races. So... Yeah, man, I've been looking forward to chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for making some time for me today. I really appreciate it. Of course, not a problem. Um, you know, so I think what got, I i don't know how I initially found you. I know it had something to do with uh, the Ted Bundy show and seeing like you posting about stuff. Um, you know, scoring it and seeing all the and the amazing pictures of your studio with all your modular gear and stuff, but I just recently watched uh, patch c v film and you know saw you in it, and then I was like oh shit yeah i need to I need to follow back up with with Justin and get him on the show oh, um, yeah. what a what a great what a great documentary that turned out so so
1: like well, it was so well done yeah, I know they they really did a great job with it and um you know, I I think it was cool that they just went down that path of of being very specific about what they were looking at and the kind of musician mm-hmm. that they wanted to interview and um, they did really great shoots and they were fun to work with. Um I haven't seen the final that feature yet. Um mm-hmm. did it did it come out so it came out well, I guess.
0: I think yeah, I think it was great. I saw I know they were releasing kind of episodes for a while, like right. kind of miniature episodes. Um but yeah, it's basically just an extended version of those. Um, yeah, I, I I really liked the direction they picked, and uh, you know, as somebody who um, you know has always been interested in in film scoring and has dabbled in it, it was I loved that they covered you know that as a as a good chunk of it, and and getting to hear you know all you guys talk about how you use it and stuff, which I definitely want to get into that you know because it seems like modular. May not be the most efficient way to score things, but uh, I'm sure you've right. got some tricks and stuff. But um, I first just want to get to know you. Um,
1: sure. So, like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm in Seattle right now. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I went yeah. to sc- I lived in Seattle for, uh, let's see, I must have moved there in 97, 98, and I lived there okay. for five, six years. Okay. Yeah, um, but then you know, grew up in Bellingham all before that.
0: My yeah. wife and I constantly are you know planning our exit strategy because it's just so expensive here and Bellingham, which isn't it's not much better, but it is it is better. Uh, that's kind of our. It's one of the options. I feel like it's it's kind of Washington State wrapped up in a city because you can you can get the ocean and then you can get the you know the mountains. It's like just. Pick a direction and go, and
1: you're you're there pretty quickly. So yeah, yeah I just love the, the North Cascades area. It's great, and it, it's kind of interesting thing about Bellingham. In the summertime, it kind of feels a little bit like a New England port town. You know, just it ha- <laughs> you know, like it has that summery, yeah. small, and there's a lot of a lot of it is on directly on the water, so it has mm-hmm. a bit of a nautical feel to it. And, Last time my mom still lives there, and uh, last Mm -hmm. time I was up there, I, I was uh, kind of I don't know I thought that was really cool. Yeah, Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful place. Um, I my mom's always trying to get me to move up there. She's sending me like you know look (laughs) what kind of house you could get here for, you know like a fraction of what you're paying for something here. Yeah, Um, I know. Yeah, it's cool.
0: It's nice. I mean, how much of what you do could be done remotely, in theory? I mean, I'm sure just being there. You know, for just the the in person interactions is probably pretty important in the networking side because you're in LA, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, COVID and everything. Like,
1: yeah. Right now, I mean, LA is. I mean, basically, what's I think the only thing that's happening is there are people who are working in in industries that like we need to stay open. And then mm-hmm. the the only other thing is that I think some people have we're visiting friends. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. And that's about it. And um, so it's kind of shut down in a way. There's like not not really a restaurant scene, and and then you know the the whole idea of going to a nice restaurant and getting takeout. It, I tried it a couple times. and It is not cool. So yeah, it, like, if we can't weird. fix that, those restaurants are not going to get my money. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but as far as what can be done remotely, um, because the, you know the more people know about you because of the work that you've done the The less concerned with your location they become in mm-hmm. the beginning, when no one knows who you are, if they know that you're another one of the guys in l a trying to fight it out, then I think it gives you a little bit of a prestige, you know where mm-hmm. like it's kind of one of the only badges of honor that you would have without any credits then the more The, the more credits you get, the less that matters, mm-hmm. so once you start to shift there then it's, um, uh, it becomes easier to locate in another area. And I do actually a ton of work with New York. Like 90% of what I do is with New York companies, or at least let's say 90% of what I've done over the last three years has been Mm -hmm. with New York. So we're always remote. I'm like a little pod. And then even in LA, no one wants to come over because there's so much traffic. Yeah, it, it's, it's so much faster for me to upload what I wrote on Dropbox and for them to load it into their edit bay. They can see it in two minutes, you know, mm-hmm. or they could drive all the way over here and, you know, chat. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I hear about that. I was actually just watching a movie last night um, called Under the Silver Lake, a really, really weird movie. Um, yeah, yeah. But I was just I like, it made me really want to go down and visit LA, but I, you know, but the, the character was driving around a lot and I was like, how realistic is this, that this person's like driving to all these places in this one day?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, well, it, it can't, depending on, you know, your, your strategy around town, <laughs> yeah. you can do it. <laughs> you know, you just have to try not to go across town at four o'clock.
0: It's kind right, of the same thing right.
1: that you deal with in Seattle, you know, like, yeah, you don't want to yeah, go anywhere bad here. at four o'clock in the afternoon if if you have to traverse the city.
0: Yeah, well, do and a little insider knowledge. Um, West Seattle Bridge is closed now, um, Forever? because it's it's gonna fall over. Oh, like it, it, it they found some massive, massive structural damage. And and I mean, good thing it happened during COVID. But once things pick back up, like I, it's gonna be gridlock here because so many people go from you know that's just the like the main artery to West Seattle, and so many people from West Seattle commute into the city. So wow. yeah, it's, it's weird. We're kind of getting like a pre-COVID traffic feel in certain areas when it's like, when you start getting closer to West Seattle Bridge. But yeah, um, yeah. welcome to Failing Structures Talk with Tim and Justin. Um, yeah. <laughs> so growing up in Bellingham, um, were, you, like, were you interested in music early on? Like how did, I, I always like to ask people like what grabbed you early, like early childhood?
1: Yeah, um I yes, I was always super interested. Um I think I mean, I I I don't know if I can remember a time when I hadn't been interested in in playing an instrument or listening to music or or thinking about um how to do it as a mm-hmm. like a kind of a career. Um my earliest um memories are of where I really kind of knew that what I thought would be a direction I wanted to go in was uh, Prince, and when they released Purple Rain, I was like mm-hmm. completely in love. I like yeah. couldn't stop looking at the album covers. I just wanted to do that, you know, whatever it mm-hmm. was. And so that was a big influence on me. Um, and then also, I I was a saxophone player pretty early on, like seven, eight years old. Uh, mm-hmm. And when I was there, then I just I wanted to be a composer. You know, and I remember sitting down with a saxophone thinking I was going to write a piece. I had blank sheet music in front of me, and I was like, how do I write this idea down? And it was kind of this weird disconnect where I couldn't quite figure out what I was going to, how to compose sitting with a saxophone and a piece of paper. So Mm -hmm. I kind of just put it down and kept practicing. Uh, But it was always a thing that I wanted to do. And as soon as it became clear to me that I could Compose, you know, it start like it started to gel. Then I went like a hundred percent in that direction. Okay, so is that what you ended up
0: um, studying? Did you go to college for for that, or yeah, I went
1: all the way. I started at the University of Washington. Before that, you know, I was taking lessons, taking music lessons in composition and in uh, guitar and piano, in Seattle, and working at a pizza shop. And, that, and, so, and then I got into the University of Washington in their composition department and it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me was all of a sudden mm. I could just focus 100% on school. I didn't have to mm-hmm. sling pizzas or, you know, work at a <laughs> place at all, you know, and I could just do yeah. that. And, so, and because I spent a couple of years playing music and learning and having to like t- to stop doing it so that I could go to work having having uh done that for a while and, and really learned how much I hated that uh, i when I got to go to school full time it was such a gift and i i made i think I just made the most of it. I barely went out i didn't even have like a drink of any kind for like three years uh-huh. I just like <laughs> st- all I did was focus and write as much music as i could and, uh, and so then I got a scholarship to u c Berkeley for my grad program. I went okay. down there for, uh, for a year. But they were really pushed in this direction of um, kind of like new music and uh, basically academic music, you know, which had no function outside of academia. And I was really having a problem with that because I was also I studied film composing with Hummy Man up in, in Seattle for okay. a year. And there's a program up there called Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program.
0: Yeah, I've, looked, I've yeah. looked into that, and I considered yeah. it, um, unfortunately, I'm just under mountains of student loan debt from you know, getting anthropology
1: degrees. But <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah. And I, for, he was just getting started with his program, and I was in the same situation. I'm like, I can't really afford to take this, but it's really important to me. Is there anything we can do? Do you have any scholarships or anything like that? And, and he said, I'll tell you what. I will write off your tuition for the year if you uh, input this giant big band piece that I wrote in, into Finale, you know. And so, which is you know a pretty good like he'd have to pay somebody a couple thousand dollars to do that. Uh-huh. And at yeah. the time, I think it, the, the the tuition was maybe like fifteen hundred bucks or something. It wasn't too okay. bad. okay. Okay. I mean, we're talking. This was fifteen years ago. So yeah. So he let me. He let me do that. And that's how I got that's there. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so, um, yeah. Anyway, was
0: yeah. this always like, was this always the plan then? Like kind of like, it sounds like maybe film scoring was something that you were interested in pretty early on or at least like, like comp- composition, like you, you know, started off with Prince, but did you ever kind of pursue the, the rock band thing, singer
1: songwriter thing? Or- um, yeah, I did. I did pursue being a songwriter and a singer and played in some bands, um just like little things that never went anywhere um in, in when I was in late teens and i was I think I was doing that because I thought i that being a composer was like this thing that other people did, and it was a very small amount of people that were living that were doing it now, and most of the composers were are were from a hundred years ago in Europe or two hundred years yeah. ago in Europe. <laughs> So I didn't really know it was a viable job. And then I remember finding out that there was a job putting all the music behind the movies that we're watching. And so at that point I had talked to my teacher about it. I said, well, maybe I can go down to Hollywood and start scoring movies. And he had said, well, yeah, but you got to realize that there's a huge amount of stuff that you have to know in order for that to happen. And, um, so I was like, well, okay, maybe the first thing I should do is just get solid with composition before I think about doing any other thing. And then uh, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, I started realizing, well, I'm getting the skills. You know, I'm, I, I know how to orchestrate. I know how to use computers. I have a pretty deep uh, electronics education because um, we had to write, uh, we had to learn how to use C sound um, as our first synthesis in, when I was in college. So we're programming, like modulation. You know, like mod. We're doing mm. like a modular patch, but it's all with code that you are Okay. So we, you know, we learned a couple of different programming languages, and got pretty deep into early computer music. And okay. then, um, so once I had learned all that, then I'm, I thought, well, I'm not that far off of what I need, what it takes to learn to score movies. And then when I worked with Hummy for a year, then it really clicked. At that point, I'm just like going for it. I'm like I'm moving to LA. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. Um, it seems like I think you know what with what started with Napster. This is a little bit of a, a, a tangent or rabbit hole we could go down. Um, but it seems like you know Napster into kind of streaming platforms, kind of um, kill not killing all, but killing the idea of the rock star and making you know a living off of you know. Being a recording artist in a band or something—it seems like the that that thing that people used to chase, you know, the rock stardom—it seems like has shifted into like a more of a scoring thing because it still seems like a little bit more of a viable career path now. Um, is that is that is that? I mean, that's the sense I get. Do you think that's true? And and has that was it like that? Has it always been that way? Like as far as like it being a viable career path or. I think I just butchered that question. Um, But do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I do. And so er, early on in the, I mean, there's always been this idea that there's a Wagnerian romantic approach to 80 to 90% of your movie scores, all the way back to when the very first movies were being scored. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they were these, they sounded, you couldn't really tell the difference between a. Piece written by Wagner and a piece written by er- Eric Wolfgang von Korngold uh, in um, you know in, in 1920, right? Like, like they're they were basically the same thing, and and that is still in a way the approach that the general big budget Hollywood films go to. But all throughout time there has been in the 60s they would have a jazz score, which was sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. You know, you. Right. Oh my God! This—they're using this shitty pop music to score a movie, and it's—you know—it's so lowbrow. But then you get the guys that can write both, and they're like, "Hey, pays great. They want it. I like writing jazz, so I'm going to do it." And they, so they would edge out somebody else who would have could could only have done a, a classical type score. And then you fast forward a little bit further, and you have the 80s and 90s where you have the giant rock star that is like, like Aerosmith and that kind of thing. Right. And those guys are selling records and doing tours and making so much money that the idea that they would leave any part of their multimillion dollar a year income, you know, being rock stars to go and make, somewhere between a hundred thousand and a million dollars to write a movie and have to deal with a director, have to do all this shit that they don't know how to do. They're not just like blowing guitar solos and then going and <laughs> drinking Budweiser. I mean, they're like, you know, they they have to work all day. It's hard and they don't mm-hmm. know how to do most of it. And it's also, you have to be subservient. And in the other line of work, you're making way more money and you're treated like a God. So they, yeah, would, they yeah. weren't interested, in fa- and so they thought that we were just kind of like music slaves, you know? Like, why would mm-hmm. you want to do that? Then the income starts to go down. They don't make any money on music sales anymore, and now the only thing that's happening is touring. Touring gets old, and touring is paying, but it's not. you've got to cover your whole expenses of your band and your life with touring now. And they start to look at the film composer who's got a nice house comfortable. Mm-hmm. He goes out every day. He does a respectable job. It's exciting. It doesn't seem to get old as you get older. You know, you can look at John Williams who will literally, you know, be conducting until he can't anymore, until he's just yeah. dead. He'll just <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh mm-hmm. so that starts to look better because you're not really treated as much like a god anymore and the money isn't super ridiculous and And then you're, you know, you want to spend time with your family. You don't want to be 48 or 58 and having to go on the road all the time. So that started. And so now people are starting to look more and more over here. And the one thing that allows you to get a gig in this line of work without any experience is being a rock star in some way. (laughs) The more of a rock star you are, the easier it is for you to just walk in and get the top level job. You can go from having no idea how to score a movie to scoring Christopher Nolan's movie, just like that. You know, if he right. likes your music. Right.
0: You know. Yeah, so. it's funny. I one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast was um, because I was think I was thinking to myself, "There's not a modular. There's not a lot of modular podcasts at the moment when I started it. I think there was one, um, and it was once a month." And I was thinking, well, if I can somehow get a name for myself, it'll be easier for for me to get, you know, people who are making movies. Because I, I just always wanted to, like, you know, like indie stuff. I never thought, I never really, like, thought that I would get into a point where I was, like, you know, doing full-on feature film scoring or anything. But just, like, just getting someone to trust you, you know, or even listen, like, even respond to your emails. I was like, I need, so part of my, like, my, uh, my whole motivation to do this podcast was to like, try to like, well, what else could I do to like make people know who I was in some, which has kind of changed now. Cause I really just like doing the podcast and I haven't pursued doing any scoring things, you know, mm-hmm. since, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, it seems like that's like a weird Like, you either have to know somebody, have crazy training and really put in the hours, um, which is probably the best way to go about it. But uh, yeah, just to get anybody. And the same thing kind of goes for like, if you're trying to get like a label to listen to your stuff, to consider listening, you know, to consider releasing it. It's like, if they don't know who you are, this just kind of seems like it doesn't even get read. You know, I've just heard that from so many people. Um, So yeah, it seems like, um, I don't know, it seems like... Maybe it's just because I got interested in it, in film scoring and uh, started noticing more, but it does seem like, you know, as a result of this kind of rock star thing kind of dying down, um, I feel like I see more, I don't know what's the word I'm trying to look for, but like you were saying, like less, like more classical type music being used. And I think of like, you know, It Follows. You know, like, and Stranger Things is a huge thing, I think, too, like bringing a lot of synth music into it and kind of like counterculture music into film scoring.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's a it's a perfect example that um, you see more and more people that if there if the music industry was strong, which now it's it's very weak. But mm-hmm. if it was strong, they would never be doing this. Like, and, and, right. and those people are trying to now, because it's much better than, tr- especially if you're like a mid-level act, right? Mm-hmm. Or like an act that, hey, you have a small following, right? Um, and you're lucky enough that a director knows that n- little niche that you have, like where you've got mm-hmm. your small fans, you, you really make really cool music, and, and then they, are like, they say, hey, do you want to score this little show that we're going to sell to Netflix, you know, and you're like, yeah, and the yeah. next thing you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just at Michael's house uh, yesterday. We were having. Oh, a, really? Nice. Yeah, we're having a chat. Um, nice.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I've him him and Kyle have both been on. Um, yeah, love those dudes. They're cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it's um, it's a thing, and and now yeah, you'll see. There's a lot more like. It's yeah. It's just one of those things where it's it's become one of the only places where you can make kind of like a an an adult reasonable living, <laughs> you know, <Like laughs> as, yeah. as a musician, you know. Which uh-huh. is it's not a it's not an easy thing, and and what's funny though is it's just still like because we don't have a union the bottom is still always falling out of of the prices, you know? Yeah. The only thing that helps a little is because I think think I'm right here, is that because Netflix and Hulu, not so much Hulu, but I mean Netflix is a big tech company. And where they're coming from is a place where compensation is high amongst people. Mm -hmm. They're used to having to pay their execs high, people just make good money when they work at these billion dollar tech companies and mm-hmm. so when they get into making or apple right when they get into making a show a top dollar fee for scoring that show does not seem weird to them because it's probably still less than they would pay a mid-level exec you know for for mm-hmm. 4 months of work or and, and considering you're making a big chunk of intellectual property for them, I think it seems cheap. So there's yeah. room to go up in that world, which is then going to drive up the costs of or the, up the prices that you can charge, HBO and NBC and all of those places as well, because if, mm-hmm. you know, if you can get a really good fee scoring a show for Apple, then no one's going to want to work for NBC, you know unless they also mm-hmm. let you get the same money right so. that's a really
0: interesting aspect it's, it seems like in a way I mean I'm sure there's plenty of you know downsides and everything but it seems like in a way what like what we've talked about this kind of loss of the ability to be a rock star you know and make a good money off of being in a band without touring nine ten months a year yeah um, it seems like it's gotten almost well where it's got worse for them it's almost gotten better for like um for film for film and tv composers
1: in a way yeah yeah, I mean, it's, right. So the, the only thing that is taking, that, that's this new, like everything is always changing in business and in entertainment. And one of the big shifts that's happening is that everyone's going into their streaming. And mm-hmm. because they're streaming everything, the relationships between the performing rights organizations like ASCAP and BMI um, and the networks is changing. And so that affects the royalty rate that a composer Mm -hmm. makes. And so as we shift there, um, there's inevitably going to be this period of time where ASCAP and BMI are going to try and get the rates that Netflix and uh, the other streamers are paying up, right? Because right now they're way under. There's a huge chasm of what you would get paid for Having a show on fX versus on Netflix, um, okay and so that it, but it's changing, and actually ironically, it's starting to get better, like Netflix is sometimes like if you get a hit on Netflix, it'll pay a really good royalty rate um, okay, so we're we're shifting into that, but that's another thing that that because ten years ago, if you were scoring Deadliest Catch, which is a discovery show, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to make a lot of money in the back end on that, you know, because it's just that's the way it works. So, uh, but when that all of a sudden that goes away and now there's no more discovery because people aren't like our discovery is now being streamed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They want a new rate. They always want a new rate So try yeah. and you know cut <laughs> out the old. Uh-huh. You know. So anyway, it's always changing, and, and and I think in some ways it's. I think it's harder to get super rich in this business. Now it used to be a little easier, you know? Yeah. Which,
0: yeah. uh, I mean, my dream job is just to my, or my dream is just to be able to not have to have another, you know, job. Like, I think I, and I think this kind of the death of the rock star kind of thing has been, I think, an overall positive. You know, growing up for me, I wanted to be like the singer and guitarist in a band, and you know, and be you know that was like my my little kid dream. You know, yeah. and uh, I think, yeah. Either way, this is a rabbit hole I wasn't expecting to go down, but I think it's a really interesting. Um,
1: it is, yeah.
0: So and let me make just to see I'm I'm understanding this correctly. So like maybe with like the streaming show, your initial compensation is. Is a, is a good rate. But then on the back end, the royalties maybe haven't caught up to that. So it's almost kind of like a, a, a balancing.
1: Yeah, like it's, it's not quite the, the same. You, you, it's getting much, much better. Um, if Five years ago, you could, in a way, maybe not even assume that you would get a back end. You would only get the okay. front end. Like back, and even back further when House of Cards first came out, mm-hmm. there was not going to be much back end, even though millions and millions and millions of people were watching that show. Uh, just because wow. there was no, you know, Netflix is, th- they come into it and they're a disruptor and they're like, wait, why would we pay royalties? We already paid you. Right, right. Now, they're right, not right. thinking makes- about precedent. Uh-huh. They're thinking, uh-huh. when I think about this right now, you know, in my, you know, with my $20 billion fortune, this makes no sense to me. <laughs> why would I want to pay you this? <laughs> They're not thinking, well, well for eighty years this is how we do it and this is why uh-huh. this is why the fee to score the show is lower. Otherwise uh-huh. we just charge you a million bucks for scoring the show and then you walk away. But otherwise, yeah. you know, there's this back end that happens that because we're giving you a really big part of your show, which you're gonna go and make a lot of money on. So mm-hmm. if, if if there is not some other benefit, then the fee that you're paying us makes no sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and but they're just coming in and being like, "So you want ninety thousand dollars to do that, and you want more later? No, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work." <laughs> and so we've had to work on them for ten years to try and yeah. get them to understand. And as they become more and more of a player, and they become more of a more of a leader, I think they're understanding that that level of compensation, even doing royalties and back-end, still doesn't affect. How monstrous their business is! So it's they're they're right. fight, they're fighting much less on that front now. Okay.
0: Well, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, God, we were we were, that was I don't know how it happened, but we got on a great great tangent there. But I'm going to try to bring us back. Um, so sure. from Seattle to to Hollywood. Yeah. Like so, you graduate. So you get your your, your graduate degree, and mm-hmm. then and then do you get a, another like certificate or degree from? From the, um, from work with, uh, was it Hummy mm-hmm. the, and the, the scoring stuff?
1: Yeah. Okay. So while I was graduating from undergrad at U- university of Washington, I was taking the year of film oh, scoring with right. Hummy. So we finished okay. undergrad and Hummy at the same time. Then, okay. then that's when I head down to California.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of work.
1: Yeah. Undergrad like seven years.
0: Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. And then
1: you end up at Berkeley,
0: but then you, you said you weren't really enjoying their approach then.
1: Yeah, it was, it was just. Like they, an academic. I wanted to work in film, and they wanted me to work in academic music, and so I, I also had gotten two. I got two offers, one from UCLA and one from UC Berkeley, and I took the one from Berkeley because it was a little better, and mm-hmm. because there was, it was a more Berkeley's kind of like a West Coast Ivy League feeling school, where like yeah. it's not unheard of for like when I was going in one of our guys was graduating and he had a job teaching at Princeton. So like, it's not that weird to think that you could fracture out into greater academia and end up at an Ivy League school as a teacher. And mm-hmm. um, so I was a little attracted by, in a way like hedging myself, like, well, I could do this if I went there, but I could also do scoring. But then I, it just didn't work in that environment to score. And there weren't really very many filmmakers in the Bay Area, um, ironically though. Um, but right before I left, I scored three student documentaries from the J school at UC Berkeley. And then I went down to LA. Oh, I, I forgot to tell you that I called UCLA after a year at Berkeley. And I said, would you match my scholarship up here? If you do, then I'll come down and finish my degree at, at UCLA. And they, uh, they, they first said, we, we don't get a lot of calls like that.
0: Yeah, They're, yeah. Like, Let us, they're like, send <laughs> us
1: your music and we'll get back to you. So I sent them my music and they called back and they're like, okay, we'll match it. And so uh-huh. I, I went down there. And finished but before I left I scored the three films and then I was down doing my first year at UCLA just, um, they were very hands-off I got to do any kind of indie films I wanted to and I just tell them what I was up to and then I had to do a few pieces of concert music and teach a couple classes and um, then while I'm doing that I get a notice that one of the films I did had gotten into Sundance from up at Berkeley Mm-hmm. So I well, this is cool, already a little thing. So I go to Sundance and we're there, and it, and it wins. It, it wins for the best short film in the festival. So I had nice. this immediate kind of like like win in this documentary space. And then um, you know and then I met this other composer down there where we were talking and, and decided to try and do something together, and at that point, we, um, we started to try and see if we could find a project to score together. And we got this show called Snapped, which is on the Oxygen Network.
0: Oh my God! Is yeah. that the show where the the one of the spouses always flips out and kills the other one? Yeah. I I, I dated a girl for a while, and that was kind of our, our junk food
1: TV. <laughs> nice. Like
0: most of our relationship
1: was watching Snapped. <laughs> so we we scored. You know, the first season comes in, and we're like, "Wow, well, this isn't going to last long." So we do it, and <laughs> I mean, there were half hour shows back then, and I think we had an order of twelve. Something like that. So Uh we did the 12 half hours. We score it. It goes away. We get a call like, hey, it's a hit. They love it. They want to order another 24. So we're like, okay, let's do another one. So we do another round. And then um, they're like, it's still a hit. We're going to move to a one-hour format. And we're going to do 26 episodes. So we just this giant order. Like 26 episodes of one hour. And we do that for eight years. And I'm doing all kinds of other stuff while I'm doing it. Uh But that's like all of a sudden, that's how... I, I get the contract for that and I say, th- okay, that's how I'm going to survive. And then I'll work on all this other stuff and see if I can not only score reality. We, I don't even know what you call <laughs> crime TV or something.
0: Yeah. It's, it's bizarre.
1: <laughs> so, you know, and I also score these other ones. Um, oh, right. So that film, it got, uh, once on it got nominated for a, Student Academy Award, and you know, it did really well. So, the next year, Berkeley calls a kid from Berkeley calls and says, we score my film? And I said, Sure, you know, I'll do it for $500 or something like that. And um, so, we do it, and then it gets nominated for an Oscar. Oh, shit. I <laughs> you know. The next year. <laughs> Wait, what are the names of these movies? So, the first one was called When the Storm Came, and it was from 2004. And it, okay. won, it won Sundance, and then, you know, just kind of went its way. It didn't really do anything after that. But then the other one was called The Death of Kevin Carter. And okay. that one got nominated for an Oscar. At, uh, HBO bought it and broadcast it. And, you know, it was and we almost won an Oscar. And, and then that guy's name was Dan Krause. And he went on into the San Francisco world of documentary filmmakers and started doing uh, work, making his own features. And then also we, we did a couple of these one-hour National Geographic explorers. That was the big mm-hmm. thing in like 2004, 2005. where Inter- National Geographic was the big game in town. If you were going to do a big budget one-hour show, that's a documentary. So everyone okay. all over the country that was in that world, which is mostly just New York and San Francisco, a little bit in L.A., were doing these. And so I started getting into that and I was working for a lot of people And the Nat Geo started to like me. And so they started to recommend me to other filmmakers that needed a composer. So I was doing that while I was doing snapped. And, um, so I was was always, I was very busy for 10 years, you know, doing that shit. Uh, I kind
0: of ask about snap. Like, so snapped is like, it's, um, it's, you know, we know what that show is. It's, it's one of <laughs> yeah. those shows, those, those true crime, like let's scare people shows. Like, and it's in, you know, like the format of it, like just, it seemed like it's just kind of run it through the mill, kind of the same thing. So like scoring that for eight years, like how did you keep I mean, did it kind of drive you crazy or was it no, just like, we, did
1: you just, the guy that I was working with uh, is a guy named Brian Langsbard and he had this ingenious method of how you could categorize all of your cues by length and beats per minute. You put it in the title, and then you put uh-huh. it in like an iTunes playlist, and uh-huh. you would see the length of a cue that you had to score and figure out the kind of beats per minute of it, and then go to your iTunes playlist, grab it, see, the, or audition it, see if uh-huh. it works. Okay, it works. Grab it, open it up, throw it in, and then change the melody you know, of the cue. <laughs> Change the baseline. I,
0: you know? I wanted to ask if you did something like that, but for I didn't that show, it would
1: be For like, that show, <laughs> we did. I got to where I could score half of that show in three hours. Jeez. I could score. I would be like, okay, Sunday, I'm going to score the whole thing today. And so it, we just, and it was good because, you know, I was still getting started. I lived in a two-bedroom apartment. You know, I, I was trying to make money. So it was the fact that we could, you know, make decent money and not have to spend that much time on it would be this every time I did it, I would just save and it would help me buy time to do what I wanted to do, which was bigger movies and bigger TV shows and stuff.
0: I was just going to so. say, it sounded like it was the perfect thing. I kind of have a similar setup right now. I, I, I um, I got a, a degree or not a degree. I got a, my license to be a low voltage electrician, but I just, I hate, I hate the construction world. It's just so not me. The, you know, just everything about it. Um, but because I had so much academic experience, I was able to go to the apprenticeship that I went to and say, "Hey, I can teach here." So I ended up getting. Now I'm just an instructor there at night for you know four hours a day, um, you know four days a week. So like, and it and it does it pays me enough combined with what I can do from the podcast, where now I can have my full days to work on the creative stuff. And it's like, man, what a what a great feeling it is to have the thing that's not too bad. Like, yeah, it's a job, but it's not terrible, yeah. you know? And it's, and it doesn't take too much of your time where you can really focus on the thing you need. So like, yeah, I just, I'm glad you found that. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, yeah, me too.
1: Like um, ironically, it ended up buying me a house. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we yeah. did it for so long. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. And they just ran, they just ran the episode so much. There was periods I mean, where they of would run it, stories. Are there? They're still Apparently making the a show. lot. There's Holy so what shit. happened was was we, <laughs> the start show started and my niece was born the day that uh-huh. it aired. She is now in uh-huh. high. She's in high school now. Holy and shit. and so we did it for ten years, scored like 120 episodes, and then they had this monstrous library. And they're like, "Well, we're not going to hire you anymore, but we'll we'll cut in your music still, which is all we wanted mm. anyway, because they're yeah. running it." There was a period where they were running it 50 to 60 times a week. You know, which is just incredible. On the same network? Yeah, it was on oxygen. And it would just be like the snap channel. They would run it all day. Oh you my couldn't God, believe God, that is insane. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> And it, and I'm still, still, I'm still friends with
0: that girl. I can't wait to tell. I'm still friends with that girl. Oh, I, nice. I can't wait to tell her that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first, oh. the, the first. Uh, I don't know. it Must be first ten seasons. I mean, but actually, the first seventeen seasons are mostly all our music. You know. Now yeah. I think they've started cutting in other people's stuff, and you know. But yeah, no one will ever be able to take away those first. You know, and and that the opening music was written by, by Brian, and the end music is by me, and I still think I think they still use that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It seems like with with something like
0: that, like a show like that, that um, you know, it is what it is. And and just with with what I've noticed about kind of what's happening with films, not film scoring, but like royalty music, it seems like maybe I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of places are going to these song trader and pond five. You know what? You know these things I'm talking about, like. Like, basically, you can just write and submit. In fact, I submitted a bunch of songs to, like, some Netflix show, like, three or four years ago and made it through some, like, X amount of rounds and then, you know, didn't get selected. But it seems like there's a lot more of that kind of thing going on. And I'm, I'm watching, you know, these these YouTube, like, I'm looking for a new camera and I'm watching these YouTube review videos with these people with these massive amounts of followers who are just reviewing stuff. And then they're giving plugs to, like, the free royalty the royalty free music bank that, that they're using or whatever. It seems like is, is that becoming an issue? I mean, I would like to think there's always going to be stuff that has artistic merit behind it. Like, you know, like a lot of this Netflix stuff that you've been working on where I couldn't imagine a director would even consider not having, you know, music specifically composed for it. But is that, is that at all a concern? Not, it's not, it's not really.
1: No. I mean, it, I think it's a, th- It's a threat to shows that weren't necessarily the highest quality that would have used a composer in the past and it would have been an easy job. Like maybe if there was really great music libraries back when I was doing Snap, they might they may not have. Although, no, they wanted a vibe. Like, we gave them a vibe. You know, we made this like, yeah. it was like Bernard Herrmann with war drums behind it. You know, yeah. so we did yeah. a thing. We, ta- we planned it out. We talked about it. And, you uh-huh. know, so, so they, they, music gives an identity. So, anytime your show deserves an identity, you're not going to use a library. But any okay. other time, you will. And so that's, yeah. that's all that's happening. And so, there's a little more of this. Pe- people might consider using pre existing music. Their for their stuff, or they just don't have the budget for it. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have a personal library of anything I've written that I own that I will let people license for their shows if they want to. Okay. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about making it official. You know. Okay. Yeah, just like a premium type library. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I got to tell you, I got to share this story with you because I I I got bit by this. Um, My friend and I. We're, you know, fancying, our, fancying ourselves budding film scores. And, um, so we just started asking around on Facebook groups, looking for anybody who needed a film scored. Mm-hmm. And we found this guy who's doing this horror movie and, um, you know, it's kind of a cheesy, not, not all that great of a horror movie, but we were like, we we'll, we're going to find a movie to do for free just to have something to show other people and as a business card and try to build up our, our experience. So we found this guy, he sent us a scene, we scored the scene. He said, okay, cool do the whole movie. And we're like, all right, we're going to do the whole movie. So we scored this hour long film and made some of my favorite music. I think I've made, but we kind of went really weird with it. Um, We used like homemade stringed instruments and it was really dissonant and very tense. And after scoring the whole movie, we were like, this guy's going to be so happy. We just made his movie so much better. And, He emailed us. He's like, I can't use this at all. So we spent weeks doing this, and then uh, we ended up seeing he released it on YouTube. And he just used uh, he used one of these like free banks. Like he just found like I, th- I think he literally just typed in like eerie music, and then got like a free thing. <laughs> it was uh, it was heartbreaking. Um. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yes, they're, they're, this business is full of heartbreak. Yeah. And and anxiety. Um, yeah.
0: And it seems like going a little bit back to what we were talking about with like this, like more people maybe interested in pursuing it. It seems like while there are more independent filmmakers out there, probably because like, you know, getting, you know, DAWs on every laptop and you can shoot movies on your phone now and stuff. Um, But I imagine just the competition has got to be really stiff. Like, like would you try to get into it now
1: if you had to start it all over again? I mean, that's a good question. Um, I got into it. Because, oh, man, it's like I've I've been a, obsessed with music my whole life, and I, and then I put all of my effort into learning how to do it, and that's all I made sure I knew how to do. So, with that skill set, I couldn't imagine, you know, something else that I would do. And I, ironically, I've read this this uh, I have this book of Beethoven's letters, and there's him writing the same thing. Uh, he said, I, I, I can't do anything else. This is the thing that I can do that makes money, and like anything else, I'm just worthless. Um, mm-hmm. And that you kind of, if you put all your eggs in that basket, then you get there. Um, you know, if uh, I don't know, but I mean, I don't, I know that at this point in my life, it, I probably wouldn't be upset if I was like had some kind of very easy career where I was. Making ten million dollars a year, you know and not having to do very much, and not, I could retire when I was forty two or something you know like that, I might just <laughs> might choose that um, you know um but it it's definitely like i mean it's daunting to get in, but it's always been daunting, so yeah. I suppose I wouldn't let anything stop me from doing it if I still wanted to you know mm-hmm. um, but it's a it's definitely a good question because it's you never really feel like you're there. You know, you never really feel like you're in a stable place. You're, you're That's off. so funny.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hear, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts and I hear comedians who I look at as like, oh my God, they're, you know, they they must, they, they've, they've attained what I want to do, but like with music or whatever. And then they still say the same thing. And, and even like, enormous comedians who have very successful careers saying that kind of stuff. And it seems like that's just the nature of, of show business really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, one of my, I used to work for Ron Jones, who is a composer for the family guy. And we, I used to Mm -hmm. work on that show with him as a, as one of the five assistants that helped him. And he would say this thing to us, like, look, kids, you're only as good as your last four bars. (laughs) You know? So, (laughs) <laughs> you know, this, is, this is, business has a short memory. Yeah. Know, so. And I
0: imagine that's even gotten shorter and shorter with like everything just being bite sized and, you know, Instagram and Twitter and, you know, the instant gratification. Um, yeah. Man, well, we're, I'm trying to decide which, which route I want to go. Cause I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but no. I, I feel like I've got a, f- a few more questions of or course. topics I'd like to, um, but just more on your story. So you're doing snapped, and it's allowing you to do all this other stuff. Is is there is there a one project where I know you just said you kind of feel like you've never have a you know you never you never feel like you've arrived. But it, was there ever a project where you're like you felt like it was a, a big step as far as like I don't know I don't know any way you want to really look at it, legitimizing your, yourself as a, a film composer mm-hmm. or something that you were just very proud to be a part of and proud of the work you did on like is there any one thing that really yeah yeah so
1: so i mean going through my career while i'm doing all of these indie films and that kind of thing i started getting these films that would go to sundance and do well Mm -hmm. so really prestigious feature documentaries and so i did a uh, maybe six or seven five or six of those and that kind of led me into this world where I started working in New York. And one of the ones that we, one of our, the first big job that I got was a series called Darknet, and it was for mm-hmm. Showtime. So it was the first big network, big show, it's going to have a huge splash. Um, the kind of show that gets on the day it comes out, it just gets a big write-up in the New York Times. It's like, you know, that. So um, that was the first big one that I did that got recognized that I could feel was like a flagship credit Um, I had done one before that called Belief that was this sprawling multi-million dollar thing about religion did I lose you are you still there no I'm still here okay cool I think somebody tried to call me um how do I get back to making Zoom big so (laughs) can I make Zoom big please it went little um Okay, I'm going to stretch. It's giving me that I don't know this zoom very well. Is this It's back? really
0: weird. It's, sometimes you have to k- click on it in your taskbar for it to come back up like if it's a like a little mini window. Oh, it's, yeah, went to um,
1: there it is. Yep, taskbar. Okay, so now I got to make me small, put me back <laughs> over there. Okay. So, um yeah, Darknet was the one that was the first one. And that that led me into getting Big series. It was right at the beginning of the doc series, the premium doc series. So, mm-hmm. Darknet was probably one of the first ones, you know. Okay. Uh huh. Which led a few years down the road to the Bundy tapes, which is the okay. biggest uh, hit that I've ever scored. I've had some yeah, decent it's hits. Yeah, such a
0: fantastic. Oh man, That's such a that fantastic cool. job. That show was great, and the score was so so good. Um. Thanks. So. I I definitely want to, it is a modular podcast, so I'll get yelled at if I don't talk to you about some modules (laughs) soon, but before we do that, there was, you know, especially now that I've learned that you, you did, you know, you did Snapped for so long, um, and then you did, you know, the Epstein thing, like, it seems like you, you've had some really, I would say, like, kind of, like, dark, challenging, you know, material, like, you've had, you've had to spend a lot of time with some really nasty people. Mm-hmm. Um, and how is the, how, if at all, has that affected kind of your, your day to day? Cause I'm, I had to, I had to get off Facebook and stop listening to so many news podcasts lately. Cause it was like really, really bringing me down. Mm-hmm. So like, I imagine you have to have to learn how to separate those two things.
1: Yeah, I think you do. You learn how to how to separate it. You know, my my studio is a separate building from my house, and the house is a pretty happy place with kids running around, and you know, it's 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 mm-hmm. a groovy spot and sunny sunny environment. Um, and then when I come out here, um, I make the the kind of the dark music that I always have been attracted to. I found mm-hmm. a, a, an application for it, which is in these shows that are about Villainous, evil problems in the world that happen. Mm-hmm. It seems to go really well with that. And I have a knack for being able to score something and have it feel like it's real. So it'll be a horror story, but it's a real horror story as opposed to one that's a fictional horror story. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting place to be so there always has to be this kind of humanity in what I'm writing so it's a it's a cool challenge and when you have the pressures of the job you get uh you have technical things you have to think about you have to write great music and you have to make a show work and you have to do it fast and that is a lot of pressure on your mind which will make the subject matter subservient to all the other shit you have to deal with so Mm -hmm. you see it and you're scoring this story about someone being raped but you're like how do I make that work and you're working on that and making it great and making it feel right and even like how do I make myself cry while I'm doing this and it becomes this weird thing where you separate yourself, you almost have to split yourself into two so that you can react to what you're doing and that you can think technically about the thing you're making so because it's such a massively engaging thing you actually can coexist with the super dark material and it doesn't affect you that much I think Mm -hmm. over time it does a little you know and I I might see a happy show that somebody sends me like hey would you want to score this and I'm like why would I want to score that (laughs) because it just seems like what's how is that even relevant it's so fucking happy get out of here <laughs> <laughs> or it's so soft and tender I'm like uh-huh don't, I was like don't you want an edge to what you're making <laughs>
0: yeah i was i was wondering because i was thinking about that before we we started chatting and and i had wondered if the amount of technicality that was involved would help kind of you know just comp- help you compartmentalize it a little bit mm-hmm. um you know, cause I was actually, I was sitting there, I was like, man, cause I, I, you know, I've seen you on Instagram. I knew you had kids and stuff and I'm like, that must be kind of difficult to be in that world and like try and, and not, not bring it into the sunshine, happy place, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's also like, and maybe this is, this is some sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what the word I'm, I'm trying to find is, but maybe kind of a way of, of artificially flowering it up. But I feel like with something like Epstein, I feel like that's important work. Like it's, it's compelling TV, but it's also stuff that I feel like people need to know about, you know? And so in a way, like, I feel like it's providing a service. Like, do you feel like you're at all like helping to contribute to the betterment of society by working on stuff like that? Or is that maybe granted? That's
1: a, no, it's a benefit for sure. It's nice to know that the thing that you're working on is, is not just trash. You know, that it Mm -hmm. has some kind of benefit, that it helps raise awareness about a problem, that it um, will help people in more in several ways that Mm -hmm. that that's nice. I mean, it's cool that the thing that you do can actually be respectable. You know, that's a nice benefit. And I I do like that. Yeah. 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 It's cool.
0: And I was wondering if that was something that you kind of took into consideration, especially in today's like today's just political climate and everything. um, Is that something that you, uh, you kind of use as some of your, you know, are those on the checklist on, on what you, what you decide to take work on? Like, does that make sense? Like, like, do you you feel like you have, or do you try to leave the politics out of it?
1: um, I don't worry so much about it being political in one way or another. I, what I look for is a strong story Mm-hmm. Um, a, a good team uh, something that is I look for something that's going to have a high exposure because that is how you make something that matters you know and so I look for those things like and, and it's really important that I have a good team
0: mm-hmm.
1: because uh, it's no fun to work with people who don't know what they're doing yeah it's a uh, they're, they're annoying and, you, you know, and you've got <laughs> yeah. all this skill and you feel like it's wasted because people are just floundering and like, look, I'm sorry, but maybe 10 years ago I would have floundered with you, but I don't want to flounder with you now. You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how I, 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 make sure that I don't get that feeling because if I, if I feel like I'm being undervalued or my time is being wasted, then I really don't want to do the thing I'm doing. I'd rather yeah, like pay make myself to, to quit you know what I mean so that's a big thing I work on the team because the day to day you work with these people a lot so they have Mm -hmm. to be they have to be good and um, yeah and then a great story and something that I don't really like to do the soft tender happy or you know I I like it to be edgy and interesting you know Mm -hmm. that's yeah because you know if I was doing um, I haven't done like a big drama show yet like a but if I could pick one right now, it would be Mindhunter. Oh, yeah. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be mm-hmm. so fun to work on. You know, and yeah, also, I, I mean, think... I love Fincher and I just love that show. And the vibe of it is just what I would write for whatever else I'm doing. So, okay. Yeah.
0: Well, right on. Um, do you have a few more minutes? Or sure. I, again, yeah. I don't want to take too much of your time. But um, So I'm curious about kind of the, like the modular side of things. Like you have so you have... I think you have a couple different formats of URAC, or no, not URAC, um but modular systems, URAC mm-hmm. being one of them. Um, is that a yeah. 5U behind you that I see? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's a 5U mm-hmm. setup. That that one is um, all Rob Hordick. Okay. So it's all his system. And oh, right. So I just have one panel left for, I, eventually he's going to have another one and mm-hmm. it'll just go in there. And okay. Yeah so that's that's the five U that I use. And then the other main modular stuff that I use is, is Bukla. is So I have a okay. a four U system. Uh, that's you know, it's a pretty good decent size. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it. But is it like an easel can. or I have oh, an I easel can see easel? Yeah. I have an easel in a in a two hundred R system. Okay, um, very cool. Yeah. So it's and that's basically it now. I don't really use the Eurorack anymore. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Okay. Because I went to... Um, uh, Buchla, for me, is the... Everything I was trying to achieve in Eurorack, I, I was basically just me trying to see if I could get something that sounded like bukla. And okay. I always had an easel, so I knew what it should sound like. And, uh, and then for a while, I also had a 259 Buchla oscillator which is incredible. And that's actually the thing that is the most ripped off in the Eurorack world. I mean, there's like everyone's doing a complex oscillator. Um and yep. they're not doing it as well. They're, they 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 <laughs> they're you know, cheap cheaply um. made uh rushed out. Not I mean, dude, Don was like a serious designer, you know, yeah. with a lot of experience. And so when he went into building his thing, it's all done with really good parts, really good components and great design and he he's the one who invented making an oscillator like that yeah so and and it still has not been beaten you know everyone yeah. has one make noise has one uh mark verbos made a pretty good one um i think even uh the, the guys that do the plants instruo they made one
0: yeah rossum
1: yeah. um yeah yeah rossum is we'll, a triple we'll probably see more. i think he made a yeah. triple one so the he's, he's, yeah yeah so he's doing a He's doing a riff on that, which is cool because you know there has to be some reason for, like, if you're just doing a version of the complex oscillator that's just not as good as the Buchla, like, <laughs> what's the point,
0: you know? Yeah. And then you're selling
1: it for like you can get a great complex oscillator from Buchla for fifteen hundred bucks, right? Mm-hmm. So if, some, if you're paying seven hundred for one that's not as good, it seems weird. Just buy less modules and get one of those. You yeah. Know?
0: I so. still haven't. I still haven't really played with a Buco system because I'm afraid. That you'll of, love it.
1: Yeah. That, well, I know I'll love it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, and I have. So, I have so much Eurorack already. Yes. I'm just like ah. But uh, yeah. So if somebody out there has an easel they want to let me borrow. Um, now, for, just for scoring though, like I was, I was curious. This will be the the, the last question I ask about mm-hmm. about this. Um, you like it? Seems like modular wouldn't be the best thing for scoring because sometimes you, you know, you need to make very specific changes, whether it's, you know, tempo or length and everything. So do you use the modular to kind of build your own sample bank thing to, to then work from or?
1: No, that, I think that's, what's different. Um, that a lot of people that I have noticed that use modular seem to do that. They'll like, mm-hmm. like, I think junkie had a period where he did an interview saying that, he spends time on the weekend making all kinds of sounds and the categorizing them and all that stuff. And I've heard other people do that as well. Someone scored something with an easel once, but they did it by making a sample library and working mm-hmm. with it. I, like, hate that idea. I have yeah. <laughs> no interest in, like, sitting there making a sound and then recording it and, like, trying to remember where I put it. And, like, I have no interest in that. I, like, kind of have... A, this is like the short-term memory palace where nothing uh-huh. gets remembered and I never try to remember anything. <laughs> I'll hear a piece of music I wrote two, two weeks ago and I'll have no idea how I did it.
0: You know, yeah. It's the only way it would be to open it
1: up and say, oh, I used that to do that? Wow, I would not have expected that that would have worked. <laughs> and, uh-huh. You know, So that's it's, that's the way I approach modular and scoring. There'll be a kind of sound that I know I need to make and it's the kind of thing that you can make well on a modular. So okay. I'll go make it there and I'll patch it up and I'll track it in and I'll, you know, I have everything in the studio is view of the film. So I just go over to the thing and I do it and see if it works while I'm making it record it in, try to work with it for a while. And if it works, that's great. And then I just leave it patched up. And then the next time I need it, I walk up and pull all the patch cords out and make a new thing. So I never okay. try to patch the same thing twice. And I never try to store anything or keep it around so I kind of bring the, the sense of modular with me. That's the, I use it the way everyone Dude. would use it as a hobby, you know? That actually, like, you
0: just kind of made me, you kind of rekindled my in, like, interest in wanting to try to do more, like, short scoring. Because mm-hmm. I've heard so many people say, like, yeah, you can't really do it very effectively with modular. And I was like, I, I don't want to do it any other way. But the way you just described how you do it, it was how I would imagine I would wanted to do it. So that's, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. That that's the way you do it. Because I'm, I'm right there with you. I do not like the idea of making a bunch of stuff and then, like you, like you said, having to remember where it was and try to bring it back up. That just it doesn't no, interest it's me like at not, all.
1: What's the point? I mean, what, for a yeah. weird sound? It's like, come on, just go make a weird yeah. sound. You know? Well, like and Also, I,
0: it just seems like that sound wouldn't be actually inspired by the thing that you're watching. I want yeah. to actually be inspired. It's by like the thing luck, right? Watching.
1: Like you're looking through your samples to see something that kind of works. But yeah. the whole point of having a modular is so that you could make a thing that you needed. You could mm-hmm. make a sound you wanted to make. I mean, there's the experiment side, but I feel like you experiment so that you know how to do stuff. You're like, this goes here and this. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I know, that I know how to make that kind of weird, glassy sound by crashing two oscillators together. You know, and So it's mm-hmm. always different every time you do it. But yeah, the, the fact that you can customize what you want to make... Is the whole point of modular? Otherwise, there is no point in having it in right. this line of work. Yeah, and so Definitely. and then I have other synths that I need that I go to, like I think of the uh, the Two Voice Pro as a as like the contrabass, like a section of contrabasses, because it has this really long, beautiful envelope to it that's kind of squishy and analog. And then mm-hmm. my my massive bass that is the biggest, coolest bass that. I've ever been able to get anywhere is the Macbeth. And that, you know, I use that almost every bass line that I write is on the Macbeth. Okay. And then I got a Monopoly that's for like, you know, weird sounds and and the thing I use so much is the TheraVox. I use that just ridiculously a lot. Like it's all right on. Yeah, Krumar, you know, so anyway. But
0: it sounds like you, like, I always wonder with people who are into film scoring, if, if, they, if they get to have the time to make the kind of music that they'd want to make outside of the thing that they're scoring, but
1: it sounds like those things are one and the same for you. They're pretty close, yeah. That's, that's one thing that I'm happy about, is that it... And maybe this happens, I don't know if maybe this happens with everybody, but like you, you put all your energy into kind of creating a, a vibe. And I always mm-hmm. wanted to be the kind of person that you would come to for a, for a sound. And not mm-hmm. who you would go to for generic stuff, and mm-hmm. so maybe it's because I pushed and pushed down there for so many years that that's what I'm known for, and that's why people call. So it kind of feeds yeah. itself.
0: Yeah, know? definitely. But I think I think you've definitely carved out that niche, and uh, yeah, I hope that continues for you, and I hope you, you get the
1: keep getting that that work that you like doing, man. Thanks. Yeah, I, I hope so too. You know, I just yeah. finished a a really cool one that uh, is going to come out in maybe february on netflix it's a four hour long show i probably can't say anything about it other Uh than that it's really fun it's got a 70s horror feel to it um it's uh takes place in the 70s and it's a it's a documentary series but it's it's also done by some of the same people that did bundy okay and we just worked on it for six months and I just finished. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wrote a lot right of on. music for that. Yeah, so as we get closer, I'll, I'll let you know it's coming out. Okay, yeah. sounds good.
0: So is there anything that you want to uh, shout from the modular mountaintops
1: or, or promote before, uh, before I let you go? From the modular mountaintops? Um, don't buy too fast. <laughs> That's really good <laughs> advice. That
0: no one takes. I know. <laughs> I everyone wish I could give my myself. No that advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> it's just like you're like, because it takes a while to figure out what you want. And if you bought mm-hmm. all this shit before you figure out what you want, then you're going to sell and then you're going to lose money. Yep. You're going to sell yep. at a loss. So that's like the name of the game. Figure mm-hmm. out what you like and then have to sell at a loss to get it. Yeah. yeah. So that's
0: the. It, it's also kind of a bit like a. there's like a. There's a collector's side to it too that is fun, but you need to be careful of, I think.
1: Yeah, like always check your purchases. Like, is this oscillator that I think I want the same price as an Italian vacation? And when was the last <laughs> time I went on an Italian vacation?
0: <laughs> I really like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you on remember that. remember that. That's
1: pretty and good. Then, and be careful, but you can look at your you're modular and go, how many Italian vacations are in that? And have, right. when was the last time I went to Italy? Uh, <laughs> 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 you might really bum yourself out if you do that one. Yeah, um, right. I've done it. <laughs> right, mm.
0: Well, I just want to say right here at the end, I want to. I have to thank you and uh, Colin Stetson. I feel like you guys are bringing back the, the coolness of the saxophone because I think the 80s did a lot of damage to the saxophone. It did. And I think... Uh, these what you guys are doing with these giant is that a baritone that you have technically it's a bass yeah a bass yeah okay. and i it also have sounds berry. so good
1: right, thank you okay yeah, i love it yeah my favorite is the is the bass uh, but i also mm. have a berry but yeah uh can you yeah the, is that yep. it yep yeah so
0: that, it has to stay on that stand to play it right? well it's just
1: it's set like 15 pounds
0: and yeah. and okay. it's
1: uh it's very large So when Uh you are um, recording with it, to have it around your neck and like walk up to your DAW and try and hit stop, (laughs) you'll like hit the table and like, oh, God, it's 99 (laughs) years old. You know, so you're doing that and you get it on the stand, you can mic it and leave it and play it and then go and hit stop and rewind and all that kind of stuff. And so it's Mm -hmm. it's incredibly this guy in in Germany uh, invented that stand. You can get it into any angle. Because, you know, he's oh, German, wow. and of course uh-huh. you can. It's <laughs> yeah, like four different th- connectors, and you can s- micro-move it so that it feels like it's around your neck. It's like mm-hmm. get, you can get it so perfect. Um, yeah, that's so awesome. that's because it's so giant. Yeah, i leave it on that. But thank you for <laughs> well, saying my name and Collins in the same sentence. I really appreciate that.
0: Absolutely, man, yeah all right that's our episode thank you so much for listening and thank you justin for coming on the show don't forget to check out all those netflix documentaries we talked about uh i especially liked the ted bundy one don't forget to get your tickets to synth booth at synthbooth.com. um it's going to be a really fun event october 16th through the 18th um Thank you to Patchworks, and thank you to Needham Woodworks, Empress Effects, Afterlater Audio, and thank you to uh, everyone out there listening. Um, I can't believe I'm in the 120s on episodes. That's crazy. I'm, I'm going to be hitting uh, three years. at 150 episodes it will be three years. That's crazy. That is crazy. Um, and thank you to everybody who uh, helps out on Patreon. It's um, It's especially helpful right now. So